Fantasy Book Club podcast that just dumped all of its investment money in pharmaceutical mega corporations, just for reasons, Amanda. Just needed to mm-hmm. shift some things around, stay mm-hmm. stay liquid. Yep, yep. Just waiting for the next big pandemic. I think yeah, we're putting all of our money not in the Pfizer and the Moderna, but we're looking ahead, ten years, yeah. twenty years down the line. I don't know who the mm-hmm. big corp will be. Maybe it'll just be PepsiCo by then, or you know, there'll be like, <laughs> you know, of the three remaining companies, it'll be. Monsanto, PepsiCo, Amazon, I mm-hmm. guess. Should we bet on the Amazon vaccine? Ooh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they'll just you can just order it online. They will I was gonna say they will have a distribution method. So at least we can trust that and rely on them for that. <laughs> Better than nothing, I suppose. If you mm-hmm. have no idea why we're talking about uh, pharmaceutical mega companies, it is because we are here with a book club episode on the novel A Good Family by A.H. Kim. If you've never listened to the podcast before, we welcome you again to the Lightly Literary Podcast. We've got Facebook and Instagram accounts up under that name. It's all one handle, just at the Lightly Literary Podcast, so check us out there. Today will be a book club discussion, which are our analytical deep dive episodes. So if you don't want this book spoiled for you, or at least the first half, because this is part one, our book clubs are always split into two parts. So we'll be discussing and spoiling the first half of this novel today. If you don't want it spoiled, feel free to just hit pause and come back and listen whenever. We'll keep the episodes up in the feed. So check us out whenever you're caught up on the reading. But if you're here to either get it spoiled for you or just want to listen to the discussion, you're in the right place. Uh, Amanda, you chose this book. Do you want to quickly run through why you picked it? Uh, Yeah, I was walking around our uh, local bookstore and I was like, you know what? I haven't bought any new books by Korean writers. So um, I just looked for typical Korean last names, which there's only a handful of. And I found this book and I, I grabbed it because it marketed itself as a mystery. And I was like, you know what? The only thing that's closest to a mystery that we've kind of done on the pod was, I guess, the um, um, the Shangri Lee one, which was the, the native speaker book, which yeah. was kind of like a corporate spy, which was kind of a mystery, but it really wasn't type of thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, and you it, know what, let's, let's try it. <laughs> and it resolved itself pretty close to halfway through the, like you find out about his boss. I feel like they don't save that for the end anyway. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a mystery, but it wasn't, it's not like a traditional popular style thriller or mystery where there is a twist in the, in the very ending. (laughs) It wasn't quite like that had a different pacing than that. So yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely playing itself up as that. It's for sure the first mystery we've done, at least explicit mystery we've covered. There may be another one in there that I just can't recall, but yes, this is definitely the first, I don't know, traditional mystery novel with you know withheld information and the author's clearly teasing things out over the course of the whole book yeah um yeah and again it's called a good family by A.H. kim so in case you didn't catch the title that's what we're chatting about any content warnings you could think of the only thing i caught was that there's some discussion of eating disorders but it's pretty brief and there's not i don't know it's not described in a ton of detail uh anything else there's yeah, that's about it. I mean, there's a lot of sex, but it's not even like really yeah. explicit necessarily. We usually don't tag for that for this, though we don't really have a style guide. It's more just like a feeling, I suppose. <laughs> it's pretty informal. Yeah. But yes, no, that's a good point. There there are some discussions of sex, too. Um, it's like every chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that is true. There's some affairs and things and yeah, uh, indiscretions. Anyway, 
Okay, let's dive into the story. We always do our book clubs, or at least we do them now in chronological order of the book. We'll be spoiling the first 18 chapters today, and we'll kind of take on groups of chapters at a time and discuss the novel, analyze it that way. Shall we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's get after it. First three chapters... um, This is the opening of the story, obviously. We open in kind of a breezy vacation home. I think it's meant to seem kind of wealthy and a little bit, not out of control, but this wealthy family is not the most cozy. (laughs) They're just getting really drunk and kind of hanging out in a luxurious vacation spot. So there's a few characters we got to know right away. There's Hannah, who is the sister-in-law, also... She is one of the main characters, right? It's Beth and Hannah that kind of go back yeah, and forth. That's okay. A, yeah. I'll admit it's been a couple of weeks since I've read this because we had to do we had to pause our recording schedule. <laughs> so <laughs> I genuinely have not looked over some of these names in a while. But yeah, so Hannah is the sister-in-law. She's one of the observers, one of the main characters. Sam is her handsome, easygoing brother. He's pretty drunk at this party. Beth is his wife, who is a very put-together pharma executive, and we'll learn a lot of crucial info about her soon. And then Eva is her older sister, and she's a little prickly. She's a little cold. And so we kind of get the rundown of these characters. It's a very brief introduction to their lifestyle. Uh, there's drunken revelry, and then at the end of it, at the end of the chapter, played is definitely like a surprise. Uh, Sam and Eva are having some secret sex that Hannah sees. Obviously, that is Sam's wife's sister, so there's something going on there, something nefarious. Hannah doesn't seem super perturbed by it. <laughs> she definitely notes it and is, you know, is like, whoa, that's not right. But she doesn't, like, talk to anyone about it. She doesn't blow up about it, so that's interesting. She's kind of reserved. Anyway, the next day, they take a fancy BMW SUV to Alderson, which is a white-collar prison in West Virginia. And so they, although they've hid it from the children that, um, that Sam... And Beth have. The children don't know it. Beth is being taken there to serve a 10-year prison sentence for things we aren't told about yet. It's just alluded to. Um, I guess we can just say, since we're going to spoil the first half, it's because of a drug that she helped market at her company, which ended up having Mm -hmm. a ton of issues and caused a lot of problems. And so she's serving a crime (laughs) for that sort of, I guess, corporate corporate malfeasance sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the intro to this book. What'd you think of the initial setup for these characters for the story for the happenings? Um, yeah. So for the characters, I was like, okay, I get a. I, it's it's your typical of like, oh, what is it called when the families are like that wasp a wasp thing? Right. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was like, okay, so I, I get a feel for what's what's happening here. Hannah, I thought was an interesting outsider perspective um and and uh i I like that she's um sam's sister sam's like significantly older sister as well and she comes off as kind of like um she calls herself a spinster at one point but she's very invested in sam's happiness and future yeah and um yeah so I, i I was like, okay, this is an interesting dynamic. The intro, the very first paragraph, I was kind of like, I don't, I'm not sure how how I'm going to feel about this book. Um, so I'll mm-hmm. just read that intro, the, yeah. the first paragraph real quick. They're all drunk as usual. It's the final night of the annual Lindstrom family reunion, the official end of summer, and the last time we'll be together for a while. Everyone's indulged in a few too many Moscow mules and dirty martinis. The kitchen stool behind the Carrera marble counter provides a mezz- mezzanine mezzanine view of the assembled cast. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was interesting that she wrote assembled cast 
which means that it's all very much like a play. It's a show for everyone, including, I guess, Hannah, um, unless she views herself as like the audience. And then, but the, the intro itself, I was kind of like, okay, so it's going to be your typical family drama mystery. Yeah. Like from the beginning. Yeah, I think the the setup does feel like she's an outsider, which is the point. It's because this family has extreme wealth and she just kind of married into it through her brother. But it's, I don't know, like the paragraph I pulled to discuss here is about her background as being Korean. And th- I think this kind of represents a lot of what the book's going to be doing, uh, which is not much. <laughs> so let's read this paragraph. <laughs> um, the, the quote here is, Claire and Allie can eat them in the car, I respond. She's referring to pancakes. It says, it's hard to imagine throwing away perfectly good pancakes. My parents grew up hungry in post-war South Korea and taught me it was a sin to waste food. Anyway, the girls will need a snack for the long drive back to Princeton. So a couple things. I mean, it's efficient, right? She's caring. It sets that up pretty well that she's, you know, a thoughtful kind of caretaker with these kids in an unofficial capacity you know she's just their aunt and it's just the korea part is fascinating obviously the story does have a lot to do with sort of white american wealth because that's how the other family set up but it's i don't know have we gotten a lot about them being korean it's like the book wants it to use it as kind of a window dressing but not something that's going to deeply shape the story or have a foundational component in the story instead it's just a thing referenced to kind of breeze through some character work it just doesn't feel like a lot of the themes this sets up are going to be that deeply explored um even and this is getting ahead for sure spoiler wise but there is some stuff in this book too about um gay and queer relationships and stuff and even that felt like it's just all so shallow and it's kind of yeah. reads like that paragraph reads where you think, oh, well, that's that's definitely meaningful. It's something interesting, but it's you you just know it's not going to get revisited, or at least you know it once you keep reading this book. Or <laughs> and and if it does, it's it's just going to be a flash. It's a lot of it feels like flashes to me. And yeah, so I, I suppose you just have to get into the rhythm of reading that way. Yeah, the so she mentions like there's like I think three or four instances where uh, Hannah kind of like highlights that she is. Korean um but to me I just kind of like every time I would read something like that I was just I would almost roll my eyes because it was just it it was almost used I think that it's just used to highlight how different Hannah is as far as like making her an outsider again um and showing how her how Sam has integrated a lot better into, I suppose, like the, the rich white society that he's, he's in now, but it's, it's just like one-liners, just one line information, like here, here I'm Korean and then done. And it's, it's just Mm -hmm. like, there are other ways that you can do that without having to like explicitly state like, something that's like my korean mother blah 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 my korean parents blah 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 like okay if you if you want to i feel like if you want to like show that you're like do something like that that's a cultural thing you could like expand on that or i don't know it's it's there are other ways that you can do it without it just feeling like a a one line like korean done korean done yeah it feels (laughs) like a like an anecdote, or not even anecdote, it's literally anecdotal, I guess. Like a footnote, that's what I was trying mm-hmm. to think of. 
And it's, I guess it is a story told in sort of footnotes, which I suppose as we keep analyzing and teasing out the book, I guess I'm curious to see which themes, ideas, topics, whatever, are being actually really kind of deep dived into, because it's, I had a hard time coming up with some, again, the book makes other references to, yeah, like I mentioned, that their relationship is is a thing that maybe you could jump on and, and kind of read into, but I don't know, it's maybe family drama will end up being just sort of the, the brother-sister relationships or sister-sister relationships will be the thing with depth because yeah that paragraph just kind of represented like that's how much <laughs> that's how much investment or info you're going to get into some of the yeah. yeah some of the various i guess it's an identity thing but yeah a lot of the topics read that way um let's keep going let's find out more about this story yeah um so chapters four through six, here we begin to have different narrators. There's Beth and Hannah, and Beth is the one who's going to jail. Um, she's going through the booking process for which she has a few snarky thoughts and is introduced to her cellmate, Juanita, who helps make her bed and points out that prison is all about how things look, not how they actually are. Uh, then we flip to Hannah's perspective, which is still about Beth. Beth asks Hannah to visit her and to bring her some change for the vending machines. Hannah is happy to visit as she feels special that Beth asked for her specifically. Um, but that's because Beth has a mission for Hannah. Find out, and here's the mystery, find out who put the idea of whistleblowing to Louis, to Lisa. I, I think that's pronounced Lisa. She's yeah, from Sweden. Lisa? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's a Swedish name I've never seen before. It's throw an yeah. extra curveball challenge at me. <laughs> Um, Hannah reluctantly agrees. Then back to Beth's narrative in which she reminisces about her lover and co-worker Charlotte Von Marr from her first days at, in my mind, is God Helsa, but is is it Gerd? I was thinking it was either Gerd or God. Yeah, it, yeah. it's spelled God Helsa, but it's, yeah, surely pronounced differently. Yeah, it's, I think it's just like the, the way to say like good health while also dealing gotcha. with her new job of janitor. The others on her janitorial team decide to haze her a bit with some gross bathroom stuff. Uh, but the team lead, Deb the Destroyer, helps her out. Yeah. Did this feel like prison written from the point of view of someone who has been to prison? No. It's hard, sure. it's hard to tell because I know that a lot of our famous prison media in i guess just like in american media movies tv i know a lot of it's overtuned but i this felt overtuned but also muted it's like it's it's kind of i don't know there there's some adjective i'm reaching for i'll try and find but it it doesn't like that nickname deb the destroyer it's too simplistic or kind of basic but also maybe a little too extreme it's doing both at the same time in a really weird way it, well, it's written the A.H. Uh, Kim, the the author. She's a, a lawyer, so. right? Right. That's why I put yeah. that to us because it's an area of expertise for the author, and you can tell at least maybe not in this section. Jumping ahead again, but you could tell that she really likes writing the Hannah character because Hannah is a legal what we call, like researcher, mm-hmm. librarian, basically for like an expert yeah. researcher for a firm and so you, that's a world you can tell she feels comfortable writing about like it's yeah anyway you, that, that there's a certain comfortability there which i guess we can jump in here because beth is such a contrast to hannah <laughs> beth I, I don't know do you think the writing with her is purposefully shallow or it's just <laughs> the author's trying because it's the way she's introduced and they're sort of the way that she gets characterized it's really like you said snarky but also really 
unimpressive snark. She's not especially insightful. It just feels kind of like a, I don't know, like, um, what is, what are the magazines she reads in prisons, you know, like country living or home homemaking. <laughs> it's like that level yeah. of snark and it doesn't, it's not especially incisive or biting. And a lot of it is just kind of eye rolling. And so maybe that's the point, right? We're meant to kind of critique Beth and her privileged lifestyle, but then it doesn't, it's not like interesting to read. It just is kind of, it's like bland, bad, bad meaning morally. She's like bland, morally bad. <laughs> um, yeah. Beth is yeah. the the least compelling character to me, even though she's one of our narrators. She just, I mean, like, even her reminisces, like, when she gets all, like, hot and heavy with Charlotte Von Marr, it's not even hot and heavy. It's... No, no. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, it's a, book of, it's a book of this kind of narration. She gets into the prison. She says, uh, there's two lines here that, that I'll read the transitions in. She says, um, Charles Von I met almost 20 years ago on our first day of Godhasla. That day with PowerPoint presentations and catered spa murals was the far cry from today, which I'm sure will be crappy, literally. So, okay, there's that transition. And then later she says, my entire life I've been leaving messes for other people to deal with, and now I'm supposed to clean up after petty thieves and drug addicts. The irony is rich. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> those kinds of snarky narrations are, I don't know, they're not humorous, they're not especially biting, they're kind of corny, and I just yep. don't think, it, it's that difficult thing where it's like, okay, well, is the author writing this to be corny? If so, then I think what would need to be true is that Hannah's sections would also need a completely different kind of style or approach to them. And part of my early struggles to really enjoy this book, I think, are just when we get to the Beth sections, which, again, I think she seems like a pretty, you know, snarky, privileged asshole person, which and she's kind of written like I just gave those really simplistic, you know, snarky transitions. I was just like, well, if Hannah's section was compelling me more and was like a deeper, more insightful or I don't know, more interesting or something, then maybe I'd buy that, that like, oh, she's writing Beth on purpose to be this way. It's like, you're not supposed to like reading about her, which is again, fine, but it's just too, it's just too simplistic. It's all just too, I don't know, bland. It was the word I've come back to like transitions like that are just kind of, I don't know. I feel like I've rolled my eyes in this book an awful lot which is unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um for Beth's transitions back and forth between cuz her all, almost all of her chapters have some kind of flashback integrated into it. And the the way that it's integrated into it, I, I it's inconsistent. So the the quote that you just pulled that is her introducing a memory then going back to uh, the present time for her. And then it goes back into her memory again later. And it's integrated in that way where it's kind of woven together. Oh, let me think about this, but compared to this, right? Then at the end on page uh, 53, the, the end of um, that idea, it's, I don't know, let me pull it up real quick. Oh, sorry. On page 59. There we go. It's just a page break. It's no longer integrated. It just goes her and what a terrible last line too. Okay, so I lie back and give in. Who am I to argue? It's Charlotte's time to eat. I was like, oh my god. And when I read that line, I was like, ugh. 
really. Yeah, it's a rather clumsy, and and we've encountered all sorts of sex scenes by now, from like yeah. Roth to Morrison has some to oh shoot, who's the author who's were pretty good? She wrote a lot about like pornography. Oh, um, <clears throat> Alice uh, Alice Coop- Walker. Walker, I was gonna say Cooper Walker. You nailed it. Yeah, and so we've we've you know on our own podcast have ventured around all kinds of different ways to write sex, and I think this book is the nightmare way. This is the way where it's like <laughs> it's going to use the most basic puns, the most kind of quick, vulgar, meaningless, uh, basically cliched out phrases or puns, and so it's just it's not going to offer anything. Even even Roth, who like a, a lot of the kind of white men of his time or era of writing, kind of overwrote things and explored probably in such a hilariously hyperbolic way (laughs) uh, the sex at least like at least with that you get to unpack some things and try and work through some things and it's like there's nothing to work through here it's just kind of exactly (laughs) yeah yeah but anyway she's she's eating i guess (laughs) yeah it was yeah that last line i was just like oh come on well, I mean, the you know, today it's going to be crappy, literally. Like, to have a paragraph break for that, like, I don't, it's, that's the kind of, those are the kinds of pun as revelation type sentences where it just doesn't, it's like, who who is that going to be humorous for? Like, to what person is that going to be a, not such an obvious connection? It's like, who yeah. are we explaining that to? To Yeah, yeah. That that's, I guess, my thought. It. It comes off as very juvenile. I think that's like, so Mm. Beth, who is a very successful, like millionaire pharmaceutical exec to be so, uh, to act so much like a teenager in a lot of ways, right? Her snarkiness, her uh, focus on just like herself and and what she wants. And then um, her sexual language and stuff. It's, it's very teenage it's very juvenile yeah and so let's revisit this briefly before moving on but so we've said all this about beth sections have you found hannah's sections different in a meaningful enough way to then lead that into an author kind of devoting that or giving that to authorial intent because that's again where i struggle it's like think back to the paragraph i read about her korean identity because those things are shallow and also just not very compelling it's like okay um, again you could read beth as like oh it's written to be cringeworthy on purpose she is cringeworthy in her privilege but it's hannah's sections aren't pulling their weight then to be subtle or interesting or you know it's it's all kind of has the same tonal register to me or in or sort of complexity and that's to me where i'm like oh this is just not a book i'm probably going to vibe with very very often or very much yeah, I I agree. Like the the way that Hannah is written, I think she's meant to. She's meant to the way that I I've been reading her is that she focuses more um, on on what's going on around her. She's like the observer type, so part mm-hmm. of being an outsider. Um, so when we do get information about her as a person, it just seems so like it doesn't jive, I suppose, with the rest of of her narrative. Um, because it's about her and it's like super quick and just like a flash in the pan. And then the focus again is, is not on her. So her voice I think is, we don't get much of who she is as a person aside from what her observations are of, of the others. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. 
Let's move on to the next section. So we're doing chapters 7 through 9 now. This is uh, when Hannah throws a birthday party for Sam's oldest kid, Claire. So we again to see Hannah in a positive light. She's quite supportive of her brother's family and is kind of a, a caretaker since Beth is now in prison for a decade, which is, you know, long time. Um, there's some fat phobia, which the book really loves. The book indulges in that pretty often. <laughs> uh, definitely has concerns about people's weight, especially, again, Beth's. It's interesting because, again, as, as Beth's chapters come and go, I think, oh, maybe, again, the author's just using that to paint her in the, as the sort of, I don't know, recklessly judgmental person. But it's kind of just the narration of the whole book. So anyway, there's also some identity confusion, probably a few other themes that they forgot to tell me about directly in the book. <laughs> but again, most of the <laughs> themes have been pretty clearly outlined, like parental distance, I guess, something else. So there's there are probably a couple other themes that, um, again, the narrative was happy to tell me. Um, later on, there's a recital that uh, Hannah goes, or sorry, Beth, no, it's Hannah. I'm going to keep mixing those up. That Hannah goes to um, because Claire has a performance of some kind. And it's the first time that we get to interact with Hannah's sister and her husband. It's Eva, right? Eva's the sister? Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty icy. The husband mentions that there's some money trouble between them and that Sam, although we don't know what the reason is yet, that Sam owes them some money. And there's some some definite iciness there. Their relationship is not good. And I believe this is after they had sex. So <laughs> Sam and um, Sam and Eva secretly, of course. And yeah. so that there's tension brewing there for sure. Um, oh, it's not. Um, it's not Eva's husband that Sam owes money to. It's it's Beth's brother because she has oh, her sister yes. Eva and she has her older brother. Got him. Oh, what was his name? I don't know. He's important though. There's a kind of an important scene with him later. They run a side business together that is mysterious. Martin. Okay, yeah, Martin. And yes, okay. So Eva's there. Brother's there. We don't know Eva's husband yet, do we? I don't think so. Uh. It- Maybe? I think that that's the guy. Um, we we get his name later, mm. um, but he's the one who helped Beth to decorate Le Refuge, um, their their Christmas chateau there. Got it. Yes. And in the meantime, in these chapters, Beth continues to adjust to prison life. We get a look through some generic meds that she gets served into a flashback of how she became rich and successful, which we've already alluded to, but the narrative does it here. She came up with a basically kid-friendly and kid-marketable version of Adderall because it's a chewy gummy thing, like a candy. And so this genius invention launched her career, and it also seemed to push her and Charlotte apart emotionally. Charlotte, again, was the woman she was basically partnered with. I mean, they were more or less together, but they were trying to keep it a secret to maintain maintain a facade of appearances but yeah that's essentially what launched her career this uh brilliant insight to kid adderall just aim drugs at kids that makes you a genius apparently <laughs> have we ever thought about just marketing this to kids and you know getting the younger the hook to the longer the client lasts i guess or something like that um what do you think about this section anything jumping out um so the outward appearance of of things is very important, which I think we get from the very beginning as well, right? So it's it's the 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 veneer of respectability and oh yes, I I'm a part of this rich family, but then when you look at, on the inside inside of their their actual family dynamic, it's it's quite twisted and and broken in a yeah. lot of ways. So the the fat arms, the uh, which then goes to the idea of like blonde hair, blue eyed beauty trope, like all these things that um, 
the the physicality of things is very important, which goes towards as well Beth's um, um, the accusation that Beth was like promoting. Well, that's what she went to jail for, right? Is that the the gummies that she created led to um, uh, teenagers, girls especially, um, like they they marketed it as a diet thing, a way to get your weight under control. And so there were some issues there, but like the, the whole importance on looks, I think is something that's really important thematically for the book. And do you remember in part one, when we were introduced to Beth for the first time, she's naked. She, I think, right. Isn't that when Hannah walks in on her and she's like putting lotion on herself or something else? And Hannah remarks upon how it's always been strange that Beth seems really comfortable naked and doesn't have any qualms about just standing there talking with her naked. And so, yeah, there, there is this kind of power intimidation of attractiveness. I just don't think, I I don't know. It just, it seems like it pulls up to the most simplistic interpretations every time. (laughs) Like for example, it's, we know that the people who struggle with their weight in this book are kind of slovenly lesser slot. Like they're not going to be the geniuses, the insightful ones that, and then in the same time, Beth, who is the most, you know, seems like intelligent, thoughtful maybe scheming person or something although you know she's the one going to prison but she's of course yeah really beautiful and pretty traditionally attractive and everything yeah and like her initial attraction to charlotte von mar was um purely physical as well right it's because of the way that they both dressed better than everybody else and they're looking down on everybody else who um were like they were simpering to the the waiter and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's all very much physical. Yeah. The um. Let's talk a bit about Charlotte. Let's talk a bit about the developments in their relationship here, because it. I feel like she's going to be some essential part of the story, though. So far, it's been mostly background setting for Beth, and it's all been done to talk about her narrative. But here's what we learn about um, Charlotte as kind of their stars rise and fall, respectively. It says on 75, suffice it to say my meteoric success and Charlotte's nearly simultaneous downfall affect our relationship in a major way. While I'm flying first class to meet with investors in Zurich, London, and Amsterdam, Charlotte's sitting home alone with Ben and Jerry. And it says, do you know what that abbreviation is? It's M-E-S-S-R-S period. Is that like some, what is that abbreviating? Oh, that's, um, that's like an old way of saying, um, misters. Oh, Okay. Huh. I don't I thought it was some other title. Maybe I thought maybe it was like a legal reference again. But anyway, she's sitting at home with Ben and Jerry. While I'm taking meetings with senior executives in Stockholm to discuss my brilliant marketing ideas, Charlotte's taking shit from entry level accountants in Uppsala or Uppsala to find her missing cab receipts. And then she talks about how again their their rise and their fall. It's I I don't know. It's a story told in summary, I suppose. Like, I guess I would ask it this way. Do you think their relationship is interesting? Do you think it's, I mean, it's an interesting part of the narrative just because it's of how it contrasts against the rest of what's going on in her family life. But do you think it's written in a compelling way? Do you have like a interest in Charlotte? Do you think that she's been developed or kind of written into a way that wants to, that makes you curious about what is going to happen to her? No. Yeah, I, I I think that that's the the issue with this book uh, thus far. Anyway, is is that it is very much um, 
and I think I, I have this problem with a lot of mysteries anyway. There's a lot of just like information that you get, but it's not necessarily mm-hmm. explored to like not artistically written. It's not explored in a way that slowly unveils itself. It's more of like all category, like almost <laughs> listing of information as you go through. Yes, it just feels very rapid, you know, very gestured at. And I suppose the the thing that a good mystery does is it makes its plot so compelling that you don't really mind or that, you know, whatever character sketches or archetypes you get, they're just going to serve as something that's kind of fun or roller coastery or just, yeah, interesting. And I don't know. I don't think the drug stuff is compelling me much so far, but I guess we'll... We'll continue to discuss as we go. Um, let's move on to 10 through 12. Yeah. And I think that works better with, like, murder mysteries, where it's like there's a threat of murder. There's the threat of death that compels the, the movement so quickly through. Um, yeah. And the listing of information versus, like, this. there's, there's no need to rush through. She's going to be in jail for a while, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder how far this narrative will go with time jumping because it so far has committed to a pretty tight timeline. Like, I don't think it's basically all taken place within, I was going to say the first year of her incarceration, but it's probably even the first like six months or four months or something. So I do, yeah. I do wonder about that. Yeah. Um, so the next uh, grouping of chapters, as Beth slathers sunscreen on Deb the Destroyer, she thinks about how she ended up with Sam. She used Sam as a kind of beard for her and Charlotte. I'm, uh, I'm not sure what the female version of that is called, but, you know. But when <laughs> she decided that she wanted to have children, she paid Sam to be a donor. Charlotte got mad, they broke up, and then Sam confessed his love for Beth. And, of course, she has conditions about that. And eventually they obviously get married. Hannah's office friend is interested in helping Hannah finding out who betrayed Beth and found out that Eva, Beth's sister, was on the witness list for the prosecution. Dun, dun, dun. We also find out that Lise and Sam were having mm-hmm. an affair that Beth knew about and approved of, but Eva felt really guilty about um, which is another weirdness. Next, Hannah is having a Friendsgiving with her coworker, while the Lindstroms gather at Le Refuge. Hannah reads an email from Beth, who almost normalizes prison life, and also asks for updates about the mystery. Yeah, it's fitting in just fine there. Seems comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Reading her yeah. magazines and making new friends. Yeah. No issues aside from that initial hazing incident. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, settling into what did she say with like petty criminals and junkies or some other weirdly judgmental, you know, superior way of categorizing the the people she lives with now. Anyway, yeah, that's definitely true. What did you? So let's keep let's keep the Hannah Charlotte conversation going because this is so far in the book the climax of that relationship. What did you think of how it was written? It's mostly on ninety five. Yeah, um, it. We we saw that kind of coming, right? Like they were on opposite trajectories from the beginning. So yeah, 
I, I mean, the, the, right, the briskness here is just, again, really stunning, but it, I, I suppose it's just part and parcel with the genre, but this is how it, their whole, you know, this long, intense, simmering relationship, they've been keeping it hidden, they've been living double lives, this is how it, it concludes, it said charlotte begins um what about no didn't you understand charlotte says i told you i didn't want a baby and i certainly don't want to be in a relationship with someone who lied to me the way you have i tried to explain but charlotte won't listen good luck being a single mother she says let's see how that works out for you with that charlotte walks out it's hard being alone and pregnant harder than i expected it's there's a staggering amount of non there's a staggering amount skipped over in those couple of sentences or lines. Like she doesn't show us the fight in any depth. She just gives Charlotte one quippy little line and then ends it. And then it can, it wraps that up or kind of transitions it with two sentences saying it's hard being a single parent harder than expected. Like I don't, again, it's maybe the book has no interest in exploring the themes and ideas that would come with those two things with either their fight over their relationship or the, the developments in her life as a single mother. But like those are pretty laughable ways to paper over what should otherwise be a, a, a intense scene or like at least you know a real huge life adjustment. Right, right. Yeah, again, we we see the the lack of depth in in description of of what's happening and and so that it makes the character seem even more shallow because it's. Like, what is her reaction? It's just to be like, yeah, it was, it was, it's hard being a single parent. Like, yeah, no shit. But like, <laughs> what, what are the details about that? Like, what made it so hard? It's, I don't know. Yeah, I agree that it just makes the characters seem shallow and it's just rushing through the narrative, I think. And what, yeah. in, in that same section too, I, I was like, I was bewildered because on page 96, um, Beth says, he brings me my favorite Panda Express takeout, and then in parentheses, hey, don't judge. Everyone's entitled to a guilty pleasure. Well, that's just the fat phobia of this book. This book hates... Yeah. (laughs) And this is just the narrative. Like, again, I don't think this is something you can easily parcel over to Beth's identity and her point of view. Like, the book just wants to shame any sort of... Yeah. Anything related to eating, overeating weight lifestyle choice it, like it's it has no place for those things it's yeah that's <laughs> just how the book is written also like the, for the the parenthetical there like wh- who are who is she talking to hey don't judge i, I was like I, well that's a t- complete change in the way that hannah's or beth speaks in the in the rest of the chapters and and it's a direct address to whom i think yeah and that's the other thing let's maybe jump into that because i think in beth's sections we're meant to be assumed as readers that we have her point of view sort of which as a, as a narrative twist if you think about how that's constructed and you think okay this is going to be a privileged person who's going to be speaking with privilege to someone who she assumes is on her team and is also privileged. You know, interesting enough pitch. Like, okay, let's make her sound really, you know, nasty and judgmental and whatever. But like Hannah's sections aren't redemptive enough to balance it out. And they're both, they both end up with some similar, I don't know, again, like boringly simplistic takeaways and stuff in the narrative. And so... Yeah, I, I, I get the sense that when she wrote Beth's section, it was kind of like, let's make her sound like she's talking to someone who agrees with her, and let's make sure that she gets to be judgmental, privileged, all that kind of waspy stuff we've discussed. And so, 
It, it is odd, though. The direct address is not, it's not relied upon, you know, confidently or reliably enough. For Hannah's chapter, uh, I was just like, my goodness. So, like, the trivia question, because this is Halloween, right? Um, and so the two guys that come up and they're the trivia question that Hannah gives them, um, it's about what the answer is that there is no sibling privilege, right? Mm-hmm. No such thing as sibling privilege. And then later we find out that Eva's on the witness list and, and stuff like it's like the the tidiness of that. I was just like, really? Like is that is that really necessary? Because she goes on later when she talks to Sam, um, towards the end of this group of of chapters, she states to Sam that there is no such thing as sibling privilege. So like what was the point in that trivia question at that time? Was it just to make that chapter like a really nice, like, ooh, the beginning is this trivia question and then the reveal about Eva being on the witness list. And I don't know. Like, I, I was just like, uh. and then she, and then she reiterates it again to Sam later. Like, what was the point in that? I also find it odd that the premise of this kind of whole book and this this is where the author's background is coming from law and giving Hannah this position of like a competent lawyer, office worker, researcher comes in. Because the premise of this whole thing, that this woman is a hyper wealthy, hyper privileged, like mega corp executive, that there, her lawyers didn't already do thorough combing and that the whole mystery is going to be legally based is odd anyway, <laughs> where it's like, it does feel like some of the revelations that have come out, it's like, really, her lawyers wouldn't have asked those questions? Like, really, her lawyers wouldn't have caught some of these details or they wouldn't have investigated or shook down like all these different people or tried to interview all these different, it just, I don't know. I think the mystery is, is fine, I suppose, so far. But it's also just raises this big narrative structural question of like, okay, it's a legal mystery about how her representation must have missed key things. It it, it does feel just like a way to set up Hannah to be this kind of like, oh, she's going to be the, the legal brain genius who cracks it, you know, get cracks it wide open, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a strange mystery so far. Uh, let's jump to 13 through 15. Uh, we're back in prison with Beth here. She's getting her work done early. And taking advantage of Deb's, let's say, positive opinion of her, there's some clear, <laughs> the book is setting up some clear sexual tension between them, at least from Deb, Deb's end. I don't think Beth has any interest, but Deb is clearly interested in Beth, at least, I don't know. Are you reading that too? Yes. <laughs> okay. That, it seemed pretty obvious, but I just wanted to make sure that there was, you know, I wasn't completely whiffing on that read. Um, we get another flashback. We often get these with Beth. So she remembers a time when she tried to hang out with Eva and her older friends and gets rejected. And then that's when it's revealed that she has a brother. I don't think before that that we knew. I guess, I guess like you said, at Claire's performance, we, we did learn that, right? Yeah. So now we get a flashback and we learn more about him, not the revelation. Then. We just learn more about him. And so he is kind of this popular soccer player and Eva's, I don't know, just like a popular prep school kid. <laughs> not not much to it, but her brother's popular for sure. Um, the family comes to visit her next, finally. So we get a little sweet reunion with her children, as, as well as some clear confusion regarding this fun camp that she's attending. That's the lie that they're telling her kids is that she's at a camp, um, which, you know, seems reasonable enough to tell super young children. Hannah fills Beth in on some various leads and suspicions that she has. Back at home, we get a peek into Beth's secret gift wrapping room, which is odd and intriguing. I guess we can unpack that, which one of her kids knows about. 
so at their vacation home, there's there's some, um, yeah, strange locations that that are mysterious and hidden. And then we get another tense encounter between Beth and Deb before flashing back one last time to when Beth remembers seeing her parents have sex. And that scene ends with some sibling taunting. Um, obviously there's some fat shaming in there and then there's some, you know, she calls her sister stupid. And <laughs> so, you know, it's really rich thematic stuff. If, if you're curious about what these characters identities are battling around, it's, it's again, you know, one of them is overweight and the other one's dumb. So cool. That's, the, <laughs> that's about, you know, I might be over, overly, um, simplifying things, but I don't think I am. <laughs> that's essentially what the taunting is about. Um, Lots of flashbacks in this section. Any of them jumping out to you, or what should we unpack? Um, the, the the weird wrapping room mm-hmm. scene. Um, so weird that there's like a hidden room dedicated to that. Um, but what's interesting about that too is um, Hannah finding that silver Tiffany's frame that she gave them for. Uh, Christmas one year and she was just like okay so it's never even been unwrapped she was like is it because they just have so much stuff and they just didn't unwrap it and they just put it away because they have so much stuff or did they look at it and they just thought that it wasn't a good enough gift so there's some and then she's like upset about that so there we actually see some emotion out of Hannah finally mm-hmm. um, which is um Interesting, and it's interesting that the emotion is something that is is negative towards Beth, specifically. Somebody that she's supposed to be helping to solve this mystery. Um, And then we have the... uh, What I actually liked here um, was we go from, like, the ultra decadence of having a room dedicated to just wrapping paper. Appearances, yeah. It's an awful, awfully large symbolic dedication to just maintaining your facade. <laughs> exactly, and then and then the next chapter, the beginning of the next chapter, it's it's uh, a pretty like it's a juxta a nice juxtaposition to Beth's actual reality, which is of course toilet scrubbing with the wonderful product Ajax. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> yeah, we'll I get to that, that later. Juxtaposition. What's up with that? Is that like an inferior <laughs> product or something? No, I think that's like a a, a commercial brand. I've definitely bought cleaner. it before. It, you know, if yeah. it's the one on sale in the aisle, I've definitely owned an Ajax bottle. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah, I could not get her persistent obsession with referencing that product. We'll we'll. You know, there's a segment planned at the end that will address this partially. But, yeah, I thought that was a strange thing. It felt like I was missing some symbolism or, um, you know, some kind of I know it's a Greek myth thing. I can't remember who Ajax was. I think he was with the Theseus ship or something. I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, some strange things. Um, Any other symbolism in the wrapping room? It just seemed like another thing to say, Okay, the appearances aren't what they seem. This is a person who is working awfully hard to maintain the illusion, you know, of things looking really tidy and beautiful, but really, you know, again, at least in this sense, it's some of the symbol, um, symbolic work and symbolism of the book that isn't fully explained to us. So <laughs> yeah, I at least appreciated that where it was kind of, it is left to linger like, huh, why would she have this? This is an odd little thing, future of yeah. her vacation home. And why is it a secret room too? It's a room that's not out in the open for others yeah. to, yeah, it's, it's- 
yeah, I, I enjoyed it. You know, a nice little flash of something, something bolder, weirder. Let's do some quick quotes from the sibling fight because there was one in here that baffled me, perhaps in terms of flow and argumentation, you can jump in and talk me through this too. But they're talking, uh, this is a flashback between Eva and Beth. They're talking about how, like, her, she saw her parents have sex and that really disturbed her for, for some reason or another. And she says, you won't learn about this in school until next year, Eva says, <clears throat> when you're in the fifth grade. But I think you're ready to know. I keep quiet, signaling for Eva to keep talking. Do you know where babies come from, she asks. Not really, I whisper. And so she explains. As Eva talks, my mind's eye returns to the scene I just witnessed in my parents' bedroom. I try to make sense of what I saw, what I felt, but I can't. Suddenly I want Eva to stop talking, but she keeps on going on and on. I just wish she'd shut up, or I wish she'd just shut up. And then Silent Night, I start singing, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. And Eva says, God, you're such a baby. She says, annoyed. She brushes the snow off herself and marches inside. Uh, so this, I thought, was a bizarre and fascinating move in the conversation. Um, how do you read that singing quote? Like, as a bit of character work, as a bit of conversational flow, as a, as a commentary on children's brains, even? Like, I don't, I'm not really sure what this was meant for. What, what is up with this? <laughs> I don't, it's, it's, it's something that I, I'm still, like, thinking over because that song is about the immaculate birth, right? Yeah, right. So, and she's explaining sex to her. So I, I thought that was kind of funny, like, she's trying to negate what Eva is telling her by singing about like a virgin's birth story, I suppose. <laughs> it's and so obviously as like a author, you could get a chance to double down on themes like that and do a subtle thing like that. I think authors get excited with the, you know, illusions in that sense. But as a kid, like, I don't get, I, I guess I just read it from the point of view of like, okay, these are supposed to be narrate the narration of children, the dialogue of children. And it just felt like such a weird kid move to break out with that song in the middle of a talk. I mean, I know that kids do the thing where once they get annoyed, they can just start not babbling, but kind of like yelling incoherently or just kind of interjecting things, talking over each other. I mean, I guess adults do that too, and they're angry. But just to start singing this song in particular, it's also kind of a delicate song and is a very soft song. It just had such a weird flow to it. And then her to say, God, you're such a baby. It's like, I, is that a baby move then? I don't it, I don't know. I just could not get a handle on this argument and kind of whether these sound like kids do when they argue or don't. It, it definitely didn't read that way to me. I just thought it was a way for the author to kind of shove in an illusion that plays on the idea of, you know, sex and conception. Yeah, that's it's definitely I mean, my kids aren't aren't old enough to start arguing with each other yet. Um, but thinking back on like my arguments with my brother, yeah, I I don't ever remember breaking out into song when I didn't want to hear him say something. So, yeah, yeah, it would be more like we would yell over each other or one of us would stomp off. Yeah, or say something. The other thing, and and maybe this is because, you know, we've been I've been hard on the book anyway about being a little too blatant with its themes or doing a lot of telling instead of showing. But this is a case where I think maybe the author did want to insert something subtle about these girls' relationship to sex, conception, whatever, family ideas. 
but it just you put it in the wrong spot then it's like you gave this to a child to interject in a child's argument and it just yeah <laughs> it would be like in the middle of a kid argument if like one of them quotes shakespeare suddenly to like hit a thematic point home and it's like well this doesn't read well at all i mean i get that it I don't know, works in a sense or has has some layering there. But man, it just it just read as so awkward to me. I I don't know. Of all the things I thought to pick, that was definitely the one I puzzled at the longest and reread thinking, am I, am I like messing up this conversation? Like, is there some kind of dynamic I'm not reading? But I think it's just awkward. Yeah, I, th- I think it's not true to reality. <laughs> yeah, and the book hasn't been especially naturalistic or something. So, you know, I, I guess I don't want to hand it or uh, hold it to those standards or anything it's it's been pretty i don't know heavy-handed I, I suppose the most naturalistic part that we haven't talked about at all is the deposition of lisa or lise danielson yeah um yeah i think that is the part that you're supposed to be that, that's supposed to be the most straightforward you know it's obviously these legal confessions and everything pretty direct and so I, I don't know that there's obviously the revelation that she slept with Sam. And so between that and Sam's intro with having sex with Eva, it's clear that whatever their relationship is, it's it's pretty open and that Sam is kind of, you know, having sex with whomever he wants to more or less. And yep. um, and that doesn't seem to be a bother to, to Beth. I don't think that's that seems like a agreed upon part of their relationship. And so anyway, other than that, um, any other thoughts on this section? Nope. Okay, excellent. Let's uh, jump into the final section. Final section. Um, Hannah is celebrating Christmas with the Lindstroms, and Hannah tentatively questions Eva, who is upset that the children found an old photo of her 40 pounds heavier in college. Meanwhile, uh, Beth is besties with Deb and Juanita, her bunkmate, and says that she has to be careful with leading Deb on. She reminisces about a trip to Europe with Martin, her brother, where she is sexually assaulted by an older dude, but Martin comes to her rescue and gets a broken nose as a prize. Mm -hmm. Um, Thus, Beth feels forever beholden to Martin. Uh, Then we're back to Hannah, who goes to lunch with Martin. She feels special and is easily smitten with him uh, until she realizes that he's just asking her to get him money from Sam. Uh, The lunch and Martin lose their sheen. Ha ha ha. Martin Sheen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She also... (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, She also recalls her conversation with Sam when he first tells her Beth would be imprisoned and that she encouraged him to testify against her for the girls. The girls being their daughters. Yeah, yeah, for the family. Um, So, yeah, we see her being selfless there. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's really the only time that we see that. Yeah, it is at least implied that she knew things were going to turn for her, turn against her, and, you know, she wanted to get ahead of it. But that's still part of the mystery, of course. We actually don't even know... I guess we know technically what happened, though we're still not quite sure how it would get up to the crime level of, I guess there was just some misleading marketing and there was some eating disorders people got from these pills. And so anyway, it's, um, it's still not, we're not, still not even certain what the crime is, are we? Or am I just under reading this? (laughs) Um, the, yeah, it's, it's the, the crime itself is that the, the pharmaceutical company was marketing the drug, the gummy, the gummy Ritalin drug. Yes. Um, for purposes that the FDA had not approved of yet. Gotcha. Yes, that's it. They kind of just, yeah, got ahead on their promotions. But so yeah. that, that does make sense. Um, should we talk about the launch? Climactic moment again in some senses, or at least, 
I think stylistically, it's the most noteworthy part of the book so far. Maybe I even. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I I thought that it was. Yeah, yeah, the, she, the best stylistically. She undergoes a kind of perception swap of Martin because Hannah enters this. They have a lunch conversation, and she enters it being very impressed by him and his you know wealth and attitude and everything. And obviously, he's going to kind of shake her down for money, sort of, or at least ask for money because Sam owes him. Um, but at the ending, there's a paragraph where her perception completely changes of the surroundings and of him, and it says on 164 and with that martin saws off a chunk of his steak and shovels it into his mouth the red wine has stained his large horse-like teeth in a purplish gray there's a heavy dusting of dandruff on his sweater and wiry hairs and blackheads on his nose i look out at the window and notice that the geraniums are fake made of cheap polyester and plastic the parking lot is filled with humvees and other gas guzzling luxury cars i wonder how many of the meals in the room are being paid for with taxpayer dollars and i'm not sure how long i've been lost in thought when i hear the clatter of his fork and knife on the plate um he's practically inhaled his meal and is busy cleaning his top incisors with a wooden toothpick and so you know she loses her appetite it's fine Uh, you know in terms of the book being interesting stylistically this is about as interesting as it gets and it's it's got some fun detail in it i think it's still you know he obviously eats too fast and the author's bothered by that but (laughs) other than that you know the the changing of the perception of his appearance um, I guess horse-like teeth is a little crude, but but fine, I suppose. Um, but the plants, the cars, the the facade of it all, yeah, it's like I, I don't know. It's it's something that I don't want to unpack or praise too heartily or in too much detail because I I don't think it's like incredible or anything. But it it was a nice moment, you know. Yeah, I agree. The um, especially compared to. Uh, the beginning of the chapter where she's very much enamored of him. She's like almost giddy, like she's on a date or something. Yeah. Um, She's actually getting attention, male attention. Um, And I think that gives us some insight into her as well. She's probably got some, um, some issues with her, uh, with how she sees herself. Um, And she's, I, I, I guess, not used to having... Uh, male attention whereas beth is very much used to having male attention and not wanting it obviously um so yeah i I, I thought that was it was a nice chapter yeah yeah and it's and it was the first time where i think the the book only wanted to unveil something i don't know it's not even that subtle i'm not sure why i liked it so much but i guess it's like it's matching some setting things with the themes and matching hannah's perception and kind of letting us go along with the ride of her perceptions and how her opinions are changing and i think the rest of it has just been way too in our face it's definitely a book that is really i don't know the narrative is just really blunt force and so this was nice again this in the i think this moment and the wrapping room not fully being explored or explained. I, I've liked these two moments. If I had to pick out two scenes from this book so far that I've enjoyed, it would be these those two, those details. Yeah. yeah. What else what else from this section? Um when she was questioning Eva for me, um, and she, like lightly questioning her, she wasn't like going at her really hard or anything like that. Um, Eva kind of turns it around and um She's so this is uh page 148. Um, we find out that there was a girl who was taking the medication, um, that God Helsa 
um, was promoting and she had died from it. Um, and they're like pretty horrific pictures apparently because of, uh, she was dying from anorexia, I believe. Right. Um, uh, so the, the pictures are pretty horrific and stuff. And Eva seems pretty like, she's like, yeah, it's, it's totally best fault. Like whatever. Like she, she's being punished justly. Um, and she says, um, but Hannah says, I haven't seen any credible evidence that Beth intended for those girls to get sick or die. I think the federal prosecutors were just playing hardball so they could get God Helsa to settle and prove, prove to the public that they were being tough on white collar criminals. And Beth was unlucky enough to get caught in the crossfire. Right. And then Eva, Eva just looks at her and says, I guess I underestimated you, Hannah. And, and that was like pretty much the end of the, the chapter. So I was like, oh, that's that's an interesting response to that. And why does she say underestimate? Like, what does she think about Hannah? Um, yeah. And what does she expect her to dig up? Because it, it's, you know, she presents to her as sort of you can help me out. You, we can be partners almost or you can really open my case, which, again, considering that she had, presumably had the best, most expensive lawyers at her side for the whole case. It's just odd to think that she would sincerely need the help of this assistant, no matter how brilliant or insightful or dedicated the assistant, you know, ends up being Hannah. That is the assistant Uh, research aide, or I I wish I didn't forget her job title (laughs) researcher librarian, maybe, but she calls herself a librarian librarian. There we go. Okay. Um, glad I wasn't just making up that word, pulling it from nowhere. (laughs) Um, yeah, but it's, it does. You do wonder if this book is going to be a long-term play to sort of play off maybe Hannah's naivete. I just, I don't know. I guess my final thought on the first half would be if the book is going to secretly have Beth be not a mastermind or genius, but if the, if the narrative is going to end up positioning her in any sort of positive way, I will say that the first half is not led me to want to do that with the book, or at least like, I don't see a reading so far where Beth could end up being either again, intelligent and crafty or maybe conniving and scheming, or there's just no version of this where I think Beth is going to be interesting just because the way her narrative is presented, it's, it's like we've unpacked. It's kind of corny. It's too straightforward. It's privileged, but it's not incisive enough. And it's just presenting her in this blandly, annoyingly um, superior kind of tonal sense. And it, yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's going to yeah. undercut it in the end and have Hannah be like tricked or rused by Beth. Um, I don't know. Any, any final thoughts or predictions on where it's going? Um. I was wondering who do you, who do you think is the one who did coach Lisa Lisa into mm-hmm. to doing it? Who do you? What is the the? I truly don't the, know who done it. I so I'm not very good at predicting who done it either. Though I don't usually I kind of let the I let the author keep all the cards and play the hand to their advantage. I don't try and do the card the card counting. I'm really playing this metaphor out, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't try and do the card counting to figure it out before the author does. I generally go along with the ride. It's as it is so often in our conversation has shown this, but I'm just so much more interested in the, the set dressings of that plot trickery. Like what are the, are they playing with any themes here? Like what other ideas or topics come up? What other motifs are they working with? Are they using setting to do something? Are they using other 
any other story elements. And so far in this book, I just don't think so. Again, I, th- I think it's obviously meant to be this sort of unpacking of privilege and like white American privilege and corporate privilege. I, but those things have not been biting or intriguing enough yet. So I'm not sure. I, I truly have not thought too hard about the plot. I've been focused on, you know, how the, how are the characters presented? Are these narratives being kind of written with any style or verve? Uh, the answer to those for me is no so far, but uh, perhaps that will pick up a bit. So do you, do you have like clear predictions or thoughts on the, the mystery of it? I think it might be Hannah. Yeah, and I do wonder, I know we just mentioned this, but I do wonder if that's one of the tricks the story is going to try and pull on us, is because she's presented as so wholesome and competent in the first half, and again, Beth's narrative has been so, again, I think it's been pretty poorly written, but maybe that's the grand point, (laughs) is that in the end it'll be like, see how I deceived you with, she seemed like such a judgmental you know, pompous asshole, basically. Like, look at how she's actually really empathetic. Or perhaps, again, like, super intelligent or sees three moves ahead and yada yada. I don't know. Again, I'd, if, if that's what happens, I guess I'll tip my cap and then think, I think the writing was poor, but <laughs> uh, I suppose we'll find out. What, what would Hannah's involvement be, do you think? I think Hannah would have been the one to kind of put the idea in Lisa's head and to, to like, give her whatever information like well this is why she's a whistleblower this is your protection from it and stuff Mm. um and i think it's because of she wants to be i think she kind of like wants to be beth in some ways yeah she wants to be the mom right there's been a a hint of that not jealousy but um that their dynamic is is one where beth has seemingly the upper hand or the I don't know. I was going to say, like, lifestyle upper hand. Not even sure if that phrase makes sense. But, okay. Let's let's dig in and find out in the back half. We'll do our normal ending segments here, Amanda, on Book Club Part 1s. We always like to end with our two classic segments at this point. One is to make a list. So let's start with our list. We create a top three themed around what the book has been about so far. I chose the topic or made it this week, so I will then set up the list. This has bothered me enormously, and I think in our um, in our book analysis just then, we talked mostly about structure, characters, a lot of character work, and kind of, you know, style as we typically do. I will say one stylistic decision I didn't get to harp on, but oh, I want to harp on it so bad, is, and I this bugs me enormously, I don't know why. I feel like I read a book recently, I wish I could remember the name, but it was a sci-fi book that was written to be an alien like contact story in the early 2000s and there is a type of i guess historical fiction more or less this isn't historical fiction but it reads this way that it's sort of like for the author to prove their credentials they almost over narrate what i'm going to call product placement or basically proper noun references and it i just find it so grating when you can't read a page without escaping some kind of reference to a proper noun of the time period and this book is doing it egregiously Uh, again this book is not historical fiction it's not written to be about a time in the past it's pretty much contemporary but yeah the list is going to be top three moments of product placement because 
I, I know in fiction, obviously, especially in literature, it's not product placement. I'm sure she's not getting paid by these companies. It's not like an advertisement or TV show. But, whoa, it bothered me. I don't know if you picked up on this over time. It's it's one of those things, too. Maybe it's just a tick I have. But it's kind of once it gets in your head, I just cannot dig it out. It's just jammed in there. So now every time she references a product, I'm just like, oh, my God, please stop. Like, we get that they're rich and we get that they're privileged and we get that. that I don't know. It just it bugs me to no end <laughs> yeah did you ever read um american psycho no no just seen the movie yeah so the book itself is it's a whole lot of just product names like it it's just listing do you so think i do you think this, this is done to an effect i suppose because with these stylistic ticks or quirks that we end up criticizing a lot it's always worth posing some version of a question or devil's advocating to see if there's some kind of purpose to it that the problem here is i think so much of it is just going to come up to the shallow purpose of well some of these people are rich and she wants to let you know that a lot of times and some of them are not and she's going to let you know that a lot of like i just can't come up with a deeper reading to these things i think that's exactly what it's meant to be is is to showcase wealth yeah, and God, I'm just sick of reading the nouns. <laughs> so let's talk about them. <laughs> let's rank them. Uh, my number three moment of product placement, and I didn't even bother to pull names, though I'm sure I remember BMW being in here. It's just luxury car names. Like, I, I just don't mm-hmm. think a sentence requires you to say the car brand. Describe something else about the car. Anything. The, the color can be symbolic. The way people get in or out of it. The way it smells. The way it. The way people take care of it. Or de- Like, there's a million things to say about a car to do some backup characterization and it's just you're always going to get the brand here and it just gets so annoying because again i don't think it's unless i'm meant to infer something subtle about the difference between bmw and lexus owners or whatever i'm just like this is so pointless you know please stop doing this yeah it's <laughs> my number yep. three mm-hmm. um my number three is tiffany's yeah yeah that both Hannah and Beth uh, specifically mentioned Tiffany's and, and Tiffany boxes. So, mm-hmm. are there any and Tiffany's bags. left? Is that a brand still? <sighs> there must be. I, I, yes, it is. Um, it is because, well, it was at least when I got married because my my cousin mm-hmm. got me a Tiffany's something something. I just remember seeing the box and being like, "Oh, I thought that this was just like in the 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 movie. What is that?" Um, my fair lady not my fair lady breakfast at tiffany's that's a place yes breakfast at tiffany's yeah <laughs> that's a that's movie the one. okay yeah maybe it's just in a tier of wealth that we are not a part of that seems pretty safe assumption to make i guess um my number two product placement moment we talked about this is just the ajax cleaner in the prison i, I just I, this one is just going so over my head i do not get why this helps the story to keep mentioning the brand like they're just doing a dirty cleaning job in prison. Like, what is the point of this? And it and it was brought up in reference so often. It's as if, I know this isn't quite the same thing because these are nouns, proper nouns, not pronouns. But it does feel like a person who has just never heard what a pronoun is. And they just keeps, and you're like, why are you saying that noun so much? You don't have to do that. <laughs> this is how it feels to me in the story where it's like, why do you keep saying the brand title? Like you can just mention that she mentioned again, the odor or the toxicity or the feeling or the roughness or the stench or the, I, it's just like, why are you doing this? <laughs> it's um, You can, you can tell this bugged me and I wish I had a kind of sharper insight or criticism of it. It's just like, it feels annoyingly repetitive to me. And I, yeah. yeah anyway. So Ajax is my two. Yeah. That, that's, that's a good one. And I'm wondering if like, 
Ajax has a particular smell or something that she associates with, like maybe because she's in, uh, she's in and out of the courthouse or whatever. So maybe yeah. that's a cleaner that she's familiar with. So it could she assumes be. that we all would be, but right. You know, I don't know. I don't know what Ajax smells like. Yeah. Um, uh, my number two is uh, pharmaceutical drugs. There's Ritalin, but then there's lots of other brand names that are actually mentioned in here. Yeah, yeah, tons. Is Adderall a? Is that like a brand that a company owns? I always thought that was just the vague name for the, I don't know, chemical properties. <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure how to phrase this with the. I don't know. My drug terminology is way down. But is is that an actual yeah. like owned brand Adderall? I. Th- I think so. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, it's like how we say Band-Aids for everything, but Band-Aid is actually the, the brand name. Right. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Interesting. I did not know that. But yes, there's been obviously, and she even, Beth in her elitism, comments on how generic drugs are, you know, the scourge of the earth because they're not going to let her company make as much money. So got to protect yep. those pro- yep. intellectual property rights more or less. Um, so, you know, there's that point of view. My number one pick, though, with a bullet is prison diet coke <laughs> um this so this is complex right because i do think you know whatever food or beverage people obviously have such intimate connections to like and nostalgia to the food or beverages they like um diet coke is also kind of a weird cultural fascination it's kind of like the thing bougie celebrities drink and show off in a way but then sometimes don't and even in our culture soda is kind of this complex thing of like it's definitely something people, you know, critique and are wary of now. But then I, it's just complex, I guess. And this one didn't bug me as much because I think that when you're in a prison and you um, have, have things taken from you and you're living a life without, that it makes sense that you would fa- uh, fantasize about really specific things. And it just, yeah, it made me kind of chuckle then. This is the one that didn't bug me as much. Like if, if all these other references went away and she just fixated on this Diet Coke and had this kind of one track mind obsession with getting a Coke, I would be like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll allow it. But it's, it was just the one example that didn't bug me. So I put it as number one. Yeah. Um, my number one is uh, just elite universities. So she mm-hmm. mentions Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, um, all these, uh, wherever she went and uh, Charlotte Von Maher went, um, all these universities. But but I thought that it was funny that like they went to all these universities, but then look at the only one who seems to be successful is Eva, but she's like unhappy mm-hmm. in her life. Um, Martin dropped out and... Beth also dropped out. Sam dropped out. And uh, so the two who actually made it were Eva and Hannah. Right. Um, and I don't... Did Hannah say which university she went to? No, she she has that very condescending comment about how Beth is just going to end up basically being a sex worker where she's going to be a genius yeah. achiever. Like, yeah, that was the... I made a joke about it earlier, but it was the conversation of like you know essentially being like well you're fat and the other one's like well you're dumb and that's that was their argument more or less um yeah their high school argument and so that's i don't remember she must have gone to a place of note though that was kind of the point of her characterization yeah so you see a bunch of um references to these uh elite colleges that that have promised you a successful life but then when you look closely it's you know they not not what what it promised for them right. in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, so those are our top three product placements. The the elite universities thing is is prevalent heavily too, and it I don't know. It's it again seems like maybe they're making in jokes we don't get as we did not attend those schools, <laughs> but yeah. it doesn't feel deep enough or intriguing enough or insightful enough to give that reading either um let's wrap up with our final segment for part one amanda it's please continue and make it stop these segments are basically self-explanatory we're each going to talk about one thing we'd like to continue in the narrative and we'll also include one thing we'd like to stop or make it stop why don't you go first because mine i think are going to be pretty obvious well maybe not but let's let's do one of yours first sure i'll do my please continue first um yeah the structure of the novel so far. I, I like that she's got two perspectives plus a deposition. And, and I think that I like it because it's pretty ballsy for a first-time author. This is her debut novel. Um, <clears throat> so at least she's, you know, trying something out with, with structure and mm-hmm. organization. So I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. I, I think when you do a mystery story and you jump points of view, it definitely creates, it kind of just has a baseline of more interest and intrigue, I think, because you have to wrestle with the way they're written, different point of view decisions and contrasting things. And yeah, I agree with that. My, my please continue all throughout there then is I just think Sam is still intriguing. I, I think maybe spending too much time with Hannah and Beth and because the writing I've found some criticisms in. it's those two characters just aren't gripping me much especially beth who i think is like objectively meant to be the most intriguing but again i think some of it's written in a shallow way and that's pushed me away from it but sam is just kind of this mysterious enigmatic figure to me um she's teasing out really slowly too and of course he's having all these affairs and sexual encounters on the outside and Hannah seems weirdly distant from him, even though they're close. Like she's not critical of these things he's doing or doesn't seem to want to pry into his life, which I find kind of odd. There's a, there's a coldness there, right? Even though they're like objectively close. It's strange. I'm very curious to see what she does with him in the second half. So I guess my please continue is let's keep unraveling the mystery of Sam. I do wonder like what complicit roles he'll have in this kind of mystery. So yeah, he's he's very much presented as almost like a puppet throughout right, this entire thing. Right. He doesn't have a whole lot of, of say for himself. Yeah, handsome idiot. Yep. Though I don't yep. know. I mean, he can't be that much of an idiot. He got into Harvard or whatever, Princeton. I forget which school it is. But he, he yeah. didn't finish, so, you know, he's handsome, maybe lazy guy. Yeah. Um, how about for your make it stop? My make it stop is um, the writing style just really needs development. There's a lot of cliches. There's stilted dialogue. There's inconsistency in tone. There's just a lot of issues stylistically for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that's my big make it stop. Yeah. To be clear, I would like this book to stop. I do not like this book. I, I don't know if it's going to launch itself into our Mount Rushmore or kind of Mount Rushmore of... Um, disrepute or something like a a top three or four book i've not enjoyed perhaps it will i don't know i will say i've bookmarked more kind of again eye-rolling moments or cliches or something in this one than than most of the books we've done but i'll I'll at least pick on something specific i'm just not really feeling this one though again i'm you know some always things to read into i i think i'm gonna go with the product placement thing that's bugging me a ton it also seems very fixable i'll say that so it could be that as the narrative moves into more of a mystery mode and really ramps up the character interaction and gets into these more intense conflict things uh between the characters conflict moments that maybe this won't kind of 
absorb me as much. But I again will say in the first half, like ah, gosh, this is a, I'm just thinking of another one. Do you notice how when they were going on the road and taking food, she says the phrase Ziploc bag like 13 times. And it's like, why yeah. are you doing this? Like, you don't. Yeah. Why is this happening? I don't understand. This is. It's so distracting to me. Like, I, yeah, it's just things like that have bugged me a ton. It also seems quite fixable, so to speak, and something that the narrative could do away with. I think some of the other issues. Again, I'm giving the always benefit of the doubt to the author, so we'll see what happens with Beth, and we'll see if that narrative kind of twists and turns and does interesting things. But at least this seems like something that could actually go away. So I'm going to go with that. Yep. Good call. I will also say as a bit of a extremely shallow personal attack, it is very heartening reading a book like this because you read the back bio and this author is, it says, immigrant, graduate of Harvard College and Berkeley Law, lawyer. And so it's like, what, a, what an impressive person, obviously accomplished and intelligent. And she's really written just a really terrible book. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. This That's the pettiness in me, you know, where it's like even <laughs> even the genius accomplished people among us, like writing is just not for everybody or fiction writing, I should say. So it's just like, wow, what a style, what a styleless kind of bland, you know, narrative that's been written here by a really impressive person. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm, yep. you know, it's I don't know. It feels I also feel comfortable making a really annoyingly snide, stupid comment like that because, yeah, it seems like she's living her best life. So kudos to her. But I have not enjoyed reading her book, <laughs> her fiction work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, any other thoughts or comments on the first half? Uh, no, I'm good. Yeah, let's see how this mystery unravels. I'm sure – I don't know if our predictions will come true. Mine, again, was just kind of vague anyway. Um Thanks for listening all the way through. As always, we appreciate you joining in for the discussion. We'll be back next week with A Good Family Part 2, again by A.H. Kim, the author. And so we'll discuss the second half and, and do our final book analyses there. As always, we thank you for listening. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word or one title. So check us out there. We appreciate the follows. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages.